Natalie Bensavanga. And I'm Tony Norman. And this is In Other News, the podcast that is not afraid to go there. Where? Anywhere the story takes us. You concerned about speaking your mind? Me? Yeah, right. You? Ha! <laughs> Let's go, Nat. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode eight of In Other News. Hey, Tony, wow. how are you? I'm doing great. Episode eight. Episode eight. And people said we would never get this far. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a great run so far, and I'm really excited about this week's show. We have a lot of ground to cover, and we have a few updates All right. to make. All right, so let's just jump right into it. Mastriano, your favorite of mine. <laughs> he is my favorite. I know he is. You. I know. I so, tell you, our own homegrown fascists. But that's that's. Uh, <laughs> yeah, let's not make judgments yet, though. <laughs> no, not at all. We're just calling it like we see it, people. So when we're talking about Mastriano, we wanted to continue the conversation because he's mm -hmm. been, you know, dabbling. If you were checking out last week's mm -hmm. show around the concept of running for the Senate, and it's been really interesting because he's really becoming sort of more favored by the Senate and people like Lou Barletta, who they're moving away from sort of Trumpism yeah, yeah. and they're moving more towards this DeSantis straight up fascist way of being. And really? I think Mastriano really much more um, envelops that sort of energy. So yeah, he even had a rally a few days ago uh, prior to this recording and um, he had a few hundred people in a, in a small town in Southern Central PA. How does one even make sense of this? Because he lost um, the race for the uh, governor by mm -hmm. 15 points mm -hmm. in Pennsylvania. You would think that uh, that kind of humiliation would convince one. It was only 15 one. points. Yeah. I, isn't it amazing? <laughs> it's all how you spin it, Tony. But as but as he said, you know, he's waiting for God and then I guess his wife mm -hmm. to decide whether he's mm -hmm. going to throw his hat in the ring again. And, uh, and the signs seem to be pointing maybe yes. Yes. That's yes, kind of where he, we're headed. So um, the return of Doug Mastriano, who would have thunk it after that humiliation the last year? But <laughs> hey, here we are. <laughs> but, you know, it raises a lot of interesting points and questions because last week we were talking about Fetterman and um, we were saying, you know, he's he's not been well. He's he's been in Walter Reed. Uh, he has been working. There have been right. photos released by his team. He's doing OK. You know, hopefully he'll be out soon according to his camp but this doesn't seem to be enough for the republicans they want video they want proof of life they want proof of life they want you know they want a live stream of him on tiktok or something i don't know um but point being it, it, it's really starting to raise eyebrows on the, the republican side of wanting to see him in the flesh yeah and I find that all a little disturbing and concerning because if you look at the other side of it, we have Mitch McConnell who fell recently mm. at a dinner. Um, he injured himself. He hurt his head. He um, he hurt. He broke a rib, and he's also you know in the hospital. And I don't see any Democrats demanding to see proof of life from that person, which right. once again just an interesting juxtaposition. Well, there's a compassion gap, I think, yeah. between um, at least the partisans on on you know both parties. Mm -hmm. um, and it's particularly disturbing about um, Fetterman, you know, folks wanting to see proof of, literally proof of life. Mm -hmm. um, it's just that there's still an inability to extend any kind of compassion his yeah. way yeah. because he was able to vanquish their candidate mm -hmm. in the last election. But that's life. That's life. And, you know, you said something when we were in pre-production that I really 
loved. You said that the Republicans have turned every vice into a... A virtue, mm -hmm. and every virtue into a vice. And anyone who can be uh, as um, honest as Fetterman is mm -hmm. about what he's going through uh, is considered weak because yeah. he is sharing something that is seen as politically vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. So what's interesting to me is we're talking about vulnerability and there's nothing more vulnerable right now than the state of Pittsburgh media. Mm. And and we don't want to belabor this. We know a lot of people have been covering this, but because we were both uh, reporters at the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette for many years, we we felt remiss if we didn't touch on this. And, and we just want to acknowledge what happened that a union member was assaulted uh, by a, a contracted worker um, during an altercation right. and it became very ugly and, and the union member is now ha was hospitalized and um, broken I, jaw with a broken jaw like and, I you know and with with no health care well and this is what is so ironic because they were striking right for a $19 right increase mm -hmm. you know to be paid by the blocks for their health care and and this has now landed someone in the hospital right. and as we know the blocks aren't going to feel any repercussions they weren't the one that threw the blow but everything's coming to I think a fevered pitch here and it needs to be addressed immediately what are your thoughts you can you, you can actually feel that you can really feel that that fever coming on to use your word mm -hmm. um and it really is um uh, discouraging mm -hmm. but um i'm still and we're both still standing with the of course the union um the newspaper guild of, of pittsburgh um but it's just so darn depressing it is to see what's going on because you know the Post-Gazette really should be an asset to all, especially mm -hmm. the folks who work there. Mm -hmm. And what's going to happen when this strike is over, assuming that the paper is still, you know, you know, it still exists intact. Yeah. So, I mean, how are these folks going to work together again? Well, that's what really concerns me. And, and hopefully they can really come to a resolution here sooner than later, because this is only going to continue to intensify. Uh -huh. And things are heating up all over the city, it seems, if we want to talk about things getting intense. Yeah. Um, for example, the University of Pittsburgh, where I went to school, and mm. I, I love Pitt, uh, there's going to be some anti-trans speakers on campus. These are not university-sanctioned events, but there are going to be two events from Turning Point mm. USA, a, a right-wing youth group. An event called Save Women Sports is going to feature Riley Gaines, a swimmer who advocates for the exclusion of trans women uh, from women's sports. And the petition claims the event is scheduled for the first day of Pitt Pride Week. And there's a second event that's going to take place at the O'Hara Student Center. Um, and this is going to be a debate on transgenderism and womanhood. And this uh, that word transgenderism was uh, coined by Michael Knowles, a conservative activist who recently called for the eradication of transgender people from public life. This is going to be really intense. It's the, the cynicism of the GOP and of the conservative uh, social movement is mm -hmm. really evident in mm -hmm. all of this. Um, the, the intensity of the attacks on uh, trans people mm -hmm. uh, is really un-American in, yeah. in every way. And it is um, basically a a replay of what was said uh, about black people in the mm -hmm. 50s and the 60s, you know, mm. under uh, Jim Crow. And this sort of impulse to just sort of exclude people and, mm -hmm. and otherize people really is, you know, the worst aspect of the American character. It really is. And we actually uh, 
contacted the University of Pittsburgh's media relations to get their mm. thoughts on this. And we asked them, you know, why are they allowing these events to take place? But they said as a public university, you know, they uphold the principles of protected speech and expression and acknowledge that legally protected speech and expression can at times offend and marginalize some mm. members. Um, and then we also asked them, what are the University of Pittsburgh's policies on deciding who can or cannot hold events? They said the university does not censor who gets invited to uh, campus by student organizations. But I think the most interesting question that we asked, and I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on this, uh, would Pitt allow like a KKK group or a neo-Nazi group to hold events on campus? And their response was, we cannot speculate on hypothetical future scenarios. Yeah, it's, it, it seems like um, when it comes to just sort of moral questions, mm -hmm. um, universities are becoming more and more reluctant to take a stand. They're mm -hmm. thinking about legal uh, remedies uh, as opposed to morality. The, they, they should have been able to say, we would you know, uh, discourage anyone mm -hmm. wanting to bring hate groups onto the campus but um, they can't bring themselves to even say that. Yeah, just like a little bit of a stronger stance. Yeah, but you know who a... is taking a stronger stance are the students. Mm -hmm. And so what they're doing is they're gonna be bringing Dylan Mulvaney. I don't know if you know who she is, but she's a big mm -hmm. TikTok star. And she is going to be here um, during Pitt's Pride Week, March 26th through April 7th. And I thought that was a great way to say, hey, you know what, we can have our voice heard as well. So hopefully that sh that event will get a much larger crowd. It probably will. It probably will. Um, you know, I'm not big on TikTok, so I don't know who anyone is. <laughs> Tony, so. it's okay. I'll keep you up to speed. I'll keep you up to speed. But you know, there are a lot of communities that are under attack these days. And coming up in the drill down, we're going to be talking with scholar Andre Perry and his conversation around black communities and uh, how they can grow their economic wealth towards the idea of equity. Exactly. He's one of the the, the most um, enlightened scholars in the country about mm -hmm. this issue. And he's from Wilkinsburg. Mm -hmm. So um, we're talking to a, you know, a homegrown scholar uh, about uh, things that are happening here and across the country. All right, so stay tuned. You're listening to In Other News. Thanks for joining us. All right, we are back for the drill down, and I'm very excited for our guest today. We are with Andre Perry. He is a scholar with the Brookings Institution, and he is also the author of Know Your Price. And Tony, you introduced me not only to Andre, but to this book. It's a fantastic book. It's um, one of those books that really should be required reading, especially for Pittsburghers. Um, Andre Perry is actually from Wilkinsburg, and um, this book is uh, a political manifesto, a call to arms, and in many ways is also a memoir, a uh, miniature memoir, because it gives uh, us a background on Andre Perry and his thinking mm -hmm. and how he thinks we should be looking at and analyzing uh, the predicament of the African-American community today. Mm. And he doesn't uh, engage in pathologies. And so, Andre, I, I just want to say thank you for this book. Um, I'm going to make sure that it becomes a bestseller, brother. Uh, you're, you're from Pittsburgh. We should all, at least here in Pittsburgh, we should all have a copy of it. So, um, that's what I think. That's what I think. <laughs> there you go. Um, when so, you're born, you get a terrible towel and you get a copy and know your price. <laughs> I 
like that juxtaposition. I think that's good. That's, that's, that's a good combo. It makes sense to me. Um, let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, economic investment in the African-American community. The subtitle of your book is Valuing Black Lives and Property in America's Black Cities. And that um, is an intro to your, your thinking, which is, hey, you know, our, um, our communities are undervalued, our homes, our property, our lives even. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, nothing grows without investment. I don't care if you're talking about education, community development, economic development, jobs. Um, it requires a level of investment for growth. One of my favorite sayings in all the world is that when you're growing ahead of lettuce um, and the lettuce is not growing, you don't blame the lettuce. You look to see if it's getting sunlight. You look to see if it's getting rainwater. You look to see if the soil is enriched. You never blame the lettuce. But when things go wrong in black communities, we blame black people. We effectively blame the lettuce. And I and I know this uh, too well because I grew up in Wilkinsburg. So if anything ever happened, it was, you know, the people's fault, the, the you know, um, uh, children not living with their fathers. It was... Uh, drugs and, and things like that. And certainly, I believe all those things contribute to the uplift or, or not of a community. However, we don't look at the overarching structures that lead to levels of investment or divestment right. um, in communities overall. So I, I, what I try to do in this book is really um, provide stories around the data that I produce at the Brookings Institution to, to provide context to things, these lofty terms called housing devaluation and economic development, agglomeration and clustering, all these like fancy terms, placemaking. But I try to put sort of a real world um, um, face on it and, and so that pe so people can really see and feel um, what is going on around them. Right. And the, your stories, your tales are so uh, accessible. Uh, and the numbers are, um, consequently, uh, they mean something. I mean, this is not a book where, that requires a person uh, having a, you know, like a grasp of, you know, like statistics. Um, this is a book that requires uh, a reader having a heart and listening to the numbers in context. And uh, you tell many wonderful stories um, about growing up in, in Wilkinsburg and, uh, and just um, how um, coming of age, um, you know, uh, in the home of a matriarch that you didn't even have um, common blood with, but who took you and other people in, uh, who became your mother. Uh, and you showed how the African-American community has figured out ways to, to accommodate people who wouldn't um, more or less be tossed aside otherwise. And, uh, and, and, I, and I wonder, like, um, how, how do these stories resonate to people outside of this area? I mean, you know, you moved me to tears a couple times. Well, um, th um, thank you. Well, not, not for crying, but uh, thank <laughs> you for stealing my writing. But, um, you know, I, I think I share a universal story. And, and I start off by talking about how I was informally adopted by this older woman in the hood. Um, I was born in 1970 and 
and most people in Pittsburgh know that that was around the time U.S. Steel started to pull out. We had massive unemployment. I mean, I think the, the it was a high of maybe 20 percent in Allegheny County, which you know that the black rate, if it's 20 percent for um, everyone, then it's extraordinarily high high for um, black population, the black population. 40, 50 percent for it. Yeah, yeah. Under, you know, under a normal circumstances, the black unemployment rate is it's almost always twice that of the white rate. Now, um, now a lo- uh, I also lived in a neighborhood that was predominantly, or city, borough, uh, Wilkinsburg, that was predominantly black. And, um, and so I have this story, um, and, then, and not to mention, I, I need to also make clear that um, one of the reasons why my a mother or my mom had to take me in um, because my father, he was a heroin addict. Uh, he was in and out of prison and eventually murdered inside of Jackson State Penitentiary right outside of Detroit where my paternal uh, family is from. Um, but for the book, Know Your Price, I, I looked at the built environment um, in which they lived. And so I started looking at the history. We know that they both mom and my father lived in neighborhoods that were red line where the federally backed homeowners loan corporation drew red lines around uh, predominantly black neighborhoods deeming them unworthy uh, for various federal investments they were subject to um, the highway construction displacing them in fact mom had to move from the hill district uh, to wilkinsburg because she was uh, pushed out by um, the building of of the Civic Arena and uh, 375. Um, but then I started looking at today's home values in those areas in which they lived. In both, uh, my father lived in Detroit and uh, my uh, mom lived in, in Wolf, ended up in Wilkinsburg. So I looked at home values, but I looked at home values all across the country, comparing homes in predominantly black places where the share of the black population is 50% or higher, and compared them to places where the share of the black population was less than a percent. And and on average, homes in black communities are half as much as, as homes in white communities. However, most people will say that's because of education and crime. But those are things you can control for in a study, and that's what we did. We um, took that absolute list price and we controlled for, and what I mean by control, we try to create an apples to apples comparison. So all things giving, uh, all things being equal. So equal uh, educational levels, equal crime levels. What is the list price then? And then what we found is pretty much astounds that homes in black neighborhoods are underpriced by 23%, about 48,000 per home, about 156 billion in lost equity across the country. Now, and I, and I be very brief, why is that important? 156 billion. 156 billion would have financed more than 4 million black owned businesses based upon the average amount black people used to start their firm. It would have paid for more than 8 million four-year degrees based upon the average amount of a four-year public education, replaced the pipes in Flint, Michigan 3,000 times over, covered nearly all the damage of Hurricane Katrina, and it's double the annual economic burden of the opioid crisis. It's a big number. So if and I, the reason why I say that last number about the opioid crisis, if my father lived in a neighborhood where the home values were at 
the market rate or the white rate, he would have greater opportunity to go to college, greater opportunity to start a business. His, his, his drug use probably wouldn't be criminalized, let's be honest. Um, his life and my life would have been fundamentally different. And so and that's why I say all the time that there's nothing wrong with black people that ending racism can't solve, that, that we, we have to look at the policies that extract wealth, opportunity, and investment, um, first and foremost. So thank you for all of that. No, that actually was very chilling, hearing all of those mm -hmm. statistics. And, and we say it so often on this show, you know, poverty really is a policy choice. So when you're looking at a neighborhood like Wilkinsburg, for example, and you're hearing all of this, you know, for a while, annexation was the topic of discussion. And now, of course, that has, you know, it's dead in the water. But with something like Wilkinsburg possibly being absorbed by a larger city like the city of Pittsburgh, is that something that you think, and I know this is hypothetical, that could have been good for the community or would that have just compounded problems? Well, there's pluses and minuses to uh, merging um, but I, I, this is the also, all, other reality. Pittsburgh itself has black neighborhoods that are not doing well. I mean, it's always been about how do you treat people, not necessarily um, uh, what kind of governance structures can you use. I certainly do believe that um, many small municipalities should share services with other municipalities. I mean, the, the, the days in which small steel towns essentially um, could finance all these services, those days are over. So we do need new systems. The idea that we should have the same systems over centuries that doesn't really hold and, and is bearing out. I mean, in fact, um, Pittsburgh certainly shares certain educational services, waste services, and, and, and other things. So I, I certainly believe we should start thinking about new ways of governing. Um, but with that said, you know, when I look at Homewood, I, I don't see much, I mean, a lot going for in terms of the black population. It's not like being in Pittsburgh is necessarily inherently that much better. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I say, you know, as, as you create systems and the proof point should not be, you know, can you create more efficient fire? Is, is, is it going to increase the economic and community outcome, uh, outcomes for black residents? Because right now, that's the real issue. I mean, we, we have a, um, a, a, a wanting tax base um, because we have lower employment. Folks aren't getting paid. They're just due. Um, there's a lot of different human development things that need to occur. Where do reparations fit in? for you in all of this? You know, I'm, I'm a proponent of reparations and, and, you, and I'm a, certainly a proponent of local reparations. I, I, I think what, however you feel that they're, they're, the reason why you get that 23% difference in home value is largely because we've structurally devalued um, black um, assets in black neighborhoods. There's a penalty or a black tax um, because in general, we view black neighborhoods as undesirable. Mm. Um, and, you know, and that is that has robbed um, people of millions of dollars. Um, and, and so there's so many programs that we can talk about slavery, Jim Crow racism, housing discrimination, education discrimination that literally rob black people of money that they should be, receive. So. Um, I do believe in reparations. I also believe 
that local uh, uh, governance, uh, uh, governments, as well as uh, the federal government, has a role has a role in in, in paying reparations. But um, I also believe in having a reparative culture. Mm-hmm. That meaning that that we need to start acknowledging when um, where racism, structural racism exists. We need to um, figure out ways to restore value that's been extracted by racism. Um, to end discrimination where we detect it. And when we, when we do that at the local level, it'll work its way up to the federal level. And that's largely the, been the debate. Do you have reparations from the federal government or local? I think both. But I also think, you know, policies of exclusion didn't necessarily start with the federal government. Uh, uh, some did, but um, but many really bubbled up from the local government. Redlining came out of Baltimore, mm-hmm. and they and it was resourced and codified in the federal government. But it started in Baltimore, so we need reparative policies at the local level that find their way up to the national level, and and it can start at Wilkinsburg, it can start in Pittsburgh, um, but it needs to start. It does need to start. That is for sure, and. We were thrilled to have you on. And as we wrap this up, we have to ask you one final question because we've been talking a lot about what's going on in Florida and around the country with a four-letter word, woke. <laughs> and so woke. we want to ask you what you think about the idea of a woke city or a woke bank <laughs> and how does that fit into you know, uh, economic prosperity around the ideas of wokeness? Well, what I've come to appreciate being woke is this being socially conscious right. and we do need to be socially conscious um, whether you're talking about um, uh, being aware of injustices around you um, racial injustices or and and um, how um, climate is changing to mm-hmm. um, to uh, gender inequality knowing that um, women are not paid at the, the same level we just um, celebrated or uh, memorialized women pay day um, uh, um, uh, a few days before this recording. So um, I, I think that, you know, there's nothing wrong with being socially conscious. We should be. Um, and so, but I also think that the term is thrown around so much um, um, without real meaning, um, but it's also, it's always important to correct the jargon and let people know that the, at, it, at the root that it, it, it means to be socially conscious. I'm Absolutely. just smiling because he quickly and easily summed up what woke meant, socially conscious, like in, right. in two, two words. And we've been you know, having a lot of trouble getting a definition out of the Republicans. So I just found that fascinating how quickly, Andre, you were just like, yeah, it's just being socially conscious and you were just on it. So we appreciate you so much sharing your thoughts. Um, we're really excited about this book. Know your price. Folks, know your price. Yeah. Valuing Black Lives and Property in America's Black Cities. You can find it at all the finest bookstores in Pittsburgh. Wherever fine books are sold. That's right. And on Tony's shelf, too. Thank you again, Andre. We hope we can have you back. There's so much more to talk about. You're listening to In Other News. Thanks for tuning in. All right. Well, here we are in final thoughts. And it was so great to talk with Andre and his thoughts on the word woke. But you were talking to me about the historical context of that of that word and of what it means. And I don't think a lot of people understand the roots of it. 
Right. Uh, woke is one of those words um, that's been appropriated mm -hmm. um, from the African-American vernacular. Mm -hmm. uh, stretches back to the 20s. Some folks says this, it, say it stretches even on back to um, the, the, the post-antebellum uh, era. But we first have a recording of it, mm -hmm. and that belly, um, the the um, folk singer, uh, he has a recording uh, that came out in the early 30s, mm -hmm. in which on the, the last sentence says, you know, stay woke, stay woke. And it was something mm -hmm. that was picked up by other folk singers and blues singers. Mm -hmm. And finally, you know, in the, in the 2000s by Erica Badu, the pop mm -hmm. singer, and then it was picked up by Black Lives Matter. And it's all about uh, enlightenment and mm. becoming aware of the social structures that are holding you down. So mm. the very idea of staying woke means simply to become aware of the conditions uh, that affect your life. It is something that uh, appeals to everyone, regardless yeah. of your color. Um, but it's become um, a, a, a term of derision. Mm. Uh, it's been uh, weaponized by the right wing to try to make us feel bad about being aware of things, of, of social injustice. It's, it's, it's crazy. Well, what's fascinating now is that it's even reached the banks. Yes. This idea the of woke the banks. woke bank, you know, <laughs> this idea of, of diversifying boards and giving money potentially to black people or to women yes. or to other minorities. And that somehow could, you know, destroy the economy. You don't I, want to be part of a woke bank. I, I have all of my money in a woke bank. And Watch PNC, out. you know, politically <laughs> incorrect. <laughs> but, you know, for all kidding aside, what, what makes me nervous about this whole conversation, Tony, and the debate around this idea is Ron DeSantis really has been the one in Florida that has yeah. taken up this mantle for this word woke and has said things like Florida is where woke goes to die. And if you, if you extract what you were just saying, that means Florida is where you go to stay ignorant. Right. It's where equity and inequality go to die. That's very, very concerning. And now, as we heard with Perry speaking about how like redlining started locally and it spread right out of Baltimore, mm -hmm. This idea of anti-wokeness is really starting to spread and it's becoming very reminiscent of Nazi Germany in the 30s. Right. Um, which is ironic because that's when this phrase was originally sort of started to use. Yeah, I mean, too. you How know, it was used by, you know, one of the greatest blues singers and folk singers of all time mm -hmm. um, in the early 1930s. And, and he heard it um, from his uh, community, uh, folks who were, you know, born in the you know, the 1860s, 1870s, and so forth. So it has this lineage, and it might even go back further than that, you know. Uh, so woke is not a cuss word. No. You know, we should embrace it and understand that it's only about enlightenment. And if you want to stay ignorant, just say, hey, I'm not woke, I'm asleep. <laughs> That's a really good way of looking at it. Well, we've got plenty of ways to help people stay woke, Get woke all the ways. And uh, we've got action items for you that we're going to share um, at the bottom of this episode. So you can just check those out on Next Pittsburgh and on our YouTube channel. And Tony, until next time, I hope you stay woke. I have no uh, doubt that you will. <laughs> Might as well. <laughs> Might as well. You've come this far. <laughs> all right, everybody. Have a great rest of your day. And as always, take care of yourselves and each other. Bye.
In Other News is a presentation of Next Pittsburgh and is proudly produced by us, along with our amazing team, Emma Honcharski and Margie Ruttenberg. Our editor is Sorgatron Media and original music by Jack Swing. And if you enjoyed what you heard, please like and share this episode and rate and review us wherever you're listening. It really helps us grow. And if you're listening on the Next Pittsburgh website, take a minute to take a look around to learn more about all the cool stuff happening in our hometown. 